Turn to Mark chapter 9, verse number 30, and you follow along as I read. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would just bless these few moments now as we look at your word. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord God, to preach the way you would have it preached. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. Lord, make me as bold as I need to be to say the things I should. I pray that all of us would have ears to hear today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just take over this entire time and just uh, take this word, apply it to our hearts. Lord, this is your word. It's the word of God. We do not believe it's the word of men. We know it is, uh, it's your truth to us. And so help us to see it as such and receive it as such today. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we see actually three separate paragraphs that I read there this morning, and we might consider those all as individual sections. As a matter of fact, in most translations of the Bible, if, if you notice, they all have separate headings over them, three separate headings there. For example, in the New King James Version that I'm holding here this morning, verses 30 through 32 is headed, Jesus again predicts his death and resurrection. And then verses 33 through 37 is headed, Who is the greatest? And then verses 38 through 41, Jesus forbids sectarianism. And it sounds like they're all three separate topics, and certainly they could be treated that way. And and each one does stand alone and and, and could be a, a separate thought. But I think there's also a common theme running through all three of those paragraphs, and I think that theme is seen in verse number 35. Verse 35, he sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, you remember the disciples uh, earlier were discussing who would be the greatest. And Jesus here explained the criterion for greatness in the kingdom. If we were to look at this in in Matthew or, or some of the parallel passages or other times when Jesus gave this same teaching, he used the word great or greatest. Here he used the word first. So I think Jesus is here explaining to us the criterion for greatness in the kingdom. 
And all three paragraphs in some way touch on that subject. I might be stretching a little bit, but I don't think so. I think all three paragraphs touch on it. Greatness in the kingdom. In the first section, we see greatness as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then in the second, we see greatness is defined by our serving others. And we'll certainly talk about that. That's, I think, the key. And then in that final section, greatness is seen in our serving with and alongside of others. So serving others, all others, selflessly is the criterion for greatness in his kingdom. And that's what I want us to see this morning. So let's think about those three thoughts. Look, first of all, at that first paragraph, verses 30 through 32, and let's, let's realize that greatness is best seen in Jesus Christ. Greatness is best seen in Jesus. Remember the three of the disciples, Peter and James and John, had been on the mountain and seen Jesus transfigured. Immediately after that, they came down from the mountain and all of the disciples then together had watched Jesus cast the demon out of a man's son. We, we read that in verses 14 through 29. And now we see that Jesus and his disciples are heading south. They're heading uh, on the journey that would eventually conclude in Jerusalem. And in verse 33, we see they stopped at Capernaum, where Peter's house was, the place from which much of Jesus' ministry was headquartered. And as they traveled through, and before they arrived at Capernaum, Jesus was again explaining to them a very important thing. Notice what he said in verse number 31. He taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this point. I think this is this is just kind of an introductory point, but there are several things of interest here. This was the third time Jesus had given this message to the disciples, at least it's recorded for us in Mark. We saw it in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. We saw it in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 12. And clearly it was something that he wanted his disciples to get their mind around it. Repetition tells us Jesus wanted them to get this. He wanted them to get that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But even after that third repetition, what do we see here? They didn't get it. Mark is very, very plain here, isn't it? They did not understand this saying. Verse number 32. Now, I suppose they were prejudiced. They had preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah was going to come and he was going to establish an earthly kingdom and break the yoke of Rome from off of their shoulders. And so perhaps they had that preconception in their mind and that prejudiced them and they they just couldn't conceive of the fact that that Messiah would die. That didn't make any sense to them. And although we, we, we might tend to be a bit judgmental of them not understanding the resurrection, I mean, can we really... Be judgmental of them for that. The fact is there's nobody in this room without the help of God and without the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life that would ever accept that truth. Even now that it's a fact of history, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand that. See, there was just nothing in their experience, nothing in their experience that could help them to accept what he was saying to them in those verses. Now, I suggest to you that they might have sought clarification Don't you think that would have been a good idea? Jesus, the master teacher, was there, and they they might have just simply asked, Yeah, Jesus, what what are you talking about? 
Can you explain that to us just a little bit more? But notice verse number 32. They were afraid to ask him. I think that's an interesting glimpse into human nature right there. I am always fascinated by the little side comments that we find in Scripture. The things that maybe we would just normally just gloss right over. But uh, sometimes I think there's so much truth there. They were afraid to ask him. We are just like that so often. How often do we remain befuddled and misinformed because of that tendency in our life? We don't understand something. And we don't ask. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because, like I said, there's something else more important here that we need to see. But think about this for a minute. Brothers and sisters, there's no question too hard for the Bible. There's no question that you can ask of God that's going to embarrass him. There's no question that's going to trip him up. You might think you have a real zinger. You don't. There's no such thing. The Bible is true. It is, it is perfect. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And it, is, it contains the mind of God. You ought not to be afraid to ask questions. You ought not to be afraid to ask questions of your Sunday school teachers or of your pastors. We probably don't know the answer half the time. But it's a good place to start. And you certainly ought not to be afraid to ask questions of God. How often do you pick up your Bible and you come to a passage that you don't understand and you just lay it down and you bow your head and you say, Lord, I don't understand that. Would you help me to understand that? If we believe the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates us and teaches us and and, and helps us to understand Scripture, why don't we ask? Why don't we ask? I mean, think about this. These disciples did not understand, and they were afraid to ask. And I think it might also be said they did not understand because they were afraid to ask. Well, that's not the main thought I wanted to see, but I do think it's important for us to think about I did mention earlier, though, that this passage speaks to our general theme of greatness, and specifically the greatness of Jesus Christ. I said that point number one that was that greatness is best demonstrated in him. And so let's think about that just for a moment. I would, I would say to you that there is no place where the greatness of our Savior is seen more than in the truths that he uttered here, in the fact that he would die, truths concerning his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Few today would deny that Jesus was a great man. I don't think if I went around and polled this room that any of you would deny Jesus Christ was great. Even those who reject his claims, even those who are still in their sins, even those who are lost, would have to admit, and normally would admit, to the greatness of the man Jesus. Some would point to his example, the wonderful life that he lived. Some would point to the tremendous teachings, the the words that he said and taught. Some would point to the legacy he left behind. No one can deny that he impacted history like no one else. And all might be measures of greatness in some way. But in reminding the disciples over and over that he would soon die, be buried, and then rise again, he emphasized that which was without doubt the primary reason why Jesus Christ was great. You see, what he accomplished on the cross had never been seen before and would never be seen again. It was a truly unique, glorious accomplishment by which our sins were forgiven and our eternal life was secured. Bishop Ryle said this about it. He said, the immense importance of our Lord's death and resurrection comes out strongly in this fresh announcement which he makes. It is not for nothing that he reminds us again that he must die. 
He would have us know that his death was the great end for which he came into the world. He would remind us that by that death, the great problem was to be solved of how God could be just and yet declare sinners to be righteous. He did not come to earth merely to teach, preach, and work miracles. He came to pay the ransom for sin by his own blood and suffering on the cross. Let us never forget this. And so maybe I'm stretching a little bit, but I do think in this passage we see greatness demonstrated in our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we come to the next paragraph, verses 33 through 37, where clearly the whole topic is about greatness. And here we see that greatness is seen in us when we serve others. And of the three paragraphs, as I mentioned, I think this is the central. This this is the nucleus around which the others orbit. This is the one where the, the text occurs. So let's break it down a little bit and see what happened here. Verse number 33, they came to Capernaum. They came to Capernaum. This was the last time they would be here in this town that Jesus loved. He had spent so much time here. And can you imagine as they walked into it for this last time how he probably looked around upon all those scenes, looked at the synagogue that some of us have also looked at, looked at the the streets and the houses and and the people, uh, knowing that he uh, he would not see them again. And when he was in the house, verse 33 says, probably Peter's house. Some of us have seen that as well. The very house that you can view today among the archaeology that is there in Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? Verse number 33. What was it that you guys were talking about as we walked? And notice verse number 34, but they kept silent. They kept silent. So think about this for a moment. They've all come into the house. Jesus asks this this question, and then there is nothing but this quivering silence to respond to that. You see, they didn't want him to know what they were talking about on the road. Because according to verse 34, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Why would they be talking about that? What was the matter with these guys? I mean, that's the first thought that comes to my mind. Why would they be talking about that? But yet, if we think about the context, we think about the fact that Peter and James and John had just been singled out and taken up onto the Mount of Transfiguration with him. The others are left down below, and then they come back down. I can imagine some interesting conversations went on. Peter and James and John were human beings, and they probably were bragging a little bit. There was probably a little bit of pride that had entered into it. Let me quote from Ryle one more time. He said, it is an awful fact, whether we like to admit it or not, That pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought they had got, they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the clothing of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips spiritual concern in the bud. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Pride. But they kept silent. They knew that their conversation was sinful. And they knew that their argument would displease the Lord, and they didn't want him to know about it. But he did know about it. 
just like he knows about everything we say and everything we do and everything we think. How many times have you said or have I said something that we would not want him to ask that question? What was that you were just talking about? How many times has that been us? How many of us, if he were to ask the same question he asked of them, would have to hang our heads in silence because we knew it was something that would displease him? They came to the house. He asked them what they had been talking about. They had no answer because they knew what they had been talking about was sin. I can just picture Jesus letting that silence draw out for a few minutes, just for effect. And then he sat down, and he gathered them around him. That's a classic, classic uh, position for a rabbi and his students. And he said, this is a teachable moment. And he decided to teach them. And he told them something every one of us needs to underline in our Bibles. This is our text for today. He told them something that was completely countercultural. He told them something that was exactly the opposite of anything they had ever learned before and exactly the opposite of anything anyone else would teach. He said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You see, Jesus' kingdom is completely different than the other kingdoms of this world. What makes one a success in the world is not at all what makes one a success there. It's actually the opposite, exactly the opposite. To be first, you must be last. To be most, you must be least. To be great, you must serve. Leadership in the kingdom is service. That phrase, he shall be last of all and servant of all, means that he chooses that servitude. It is a deliberate, voluntary choice. Now, as we know, Jesus didn't stop at just teaching that truth. He illustrated it. He illustrated it later on in his ministry when he washed the disciples' feet. You can read about that in John chapter 13. Even there, they didn't still quite understand it, but nonetheless, he illustrated it. He also illustrated it here when he took a little child and set him in the midst of them in verse number 36. Most uh, commentators that I read and studied for this said that was probably Peter's child. Interesting. There's no way to really know that, but they were almost certainly in Peter's house, and so it was possible that it was Peter's child. And as he took that child in his arms, he was illustrating what he was teaching about servant leadership, serving the least of society. In Aramaic, which is what he would have been speaking, the word for child, the word for servant, the exact same word. And so he was saying uh, that uh, by welcoming and reaching out to this child, this servant, he was illustrating that we should do the same. Here's how one man explained that. He said, Jesus was saying that the disciples must receive his children, other servants and disciples, with the open arms and love with which he was holding that child. There was to be no thought of precedence, who was better than whom, but simple, open-armed affection. And Jesus would teach this same truth many times. This was not the only time. We're going to see it again when we get to chapter 10 in Mark. Chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Paul would later build on this same truth in his letter to the Philippians when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Look, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So greatness in the kingdom, Christ's kingdom, derives from service. Serve others if you would attain all you can for Jesus. Serve others fully. Serve others voluntarily. Serve others completely, putting their needs always and totally ahead of your own greatness. Greatness is seen in us when we serve others. I wonder, does this ring home with you as it does with me? One final paragraph that we see here, verses 38 through 41. One final lesson about greatness, and I, I believe what it's saying to us is that greatness is seen in us when we serve with or alongside others. This section doesn't specifically speak about greatness, but I want you to notice the words in verse 38, now John answered him. Now John answered him. That ties that, this passage, back to the previous conversation that he had. John's words here were in direct response to Jesus' teaching on greatness. You notice a repetition of the phrase, my name, in verses 37, 38, 39, and 41. It all revolves, both of these sections revolve around serving others in his name, with his authority, or as his representative. Jesus has just taught them that such humble service that puts others first is the key to greatness. And then John, John speaks up. And he asks about a very specific case that he thinks applies. That's how I think these two tie together. John says to them, wait a minute. We saw somebody doing just that, Jesus. We saw somebody serving others in your name. We saw somebody casting out demons in your name. But we told him to stop because he was not in our group. Now, I, I have to confess to you, as I study these things, sometimes I... I learn things. Hopefully I learn things every time. But uh, sometimes I, I come to the conclusion that I have always thought about a particular passage wrong. And I think this is one of those times. I confess that I've almost always looked at verse 38 thinking John was bragging. Thinking John was saying, ha, 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 we, we stopped him from doing that, Lord, like it was some kind of a virtue. But thinking it through the context here, I don't think that's the case. I think he was confessing. I think he was saying, Wait a minute now, Jesus, if that's right, if what you're saying is right, greatness is by serving others, then we kind of messed up here because we told somebody who was doing just that to stop. We saw somebody serving in your name, but we didn't receive him as you were teaching. We forbade him. We rejected him. Because this, little, this individual was not in their little group, they didn't want anything to do with him. And Jesus said, look at his words. Verse 39, do not forbid him. Isn't it amazing how so many Christians and Christian groups today have the same mindset that John and his disciples demonstrated here? This is a non-denominational church. We don't affiliate with any particular denomination here at Friendship Bible Church. But our doctrine would best be described as Baptist. That is certainly my training and background. The group or denomination that I believe is most accurate in their interpretation of Scripture. 
That being said, though, there are some Baptists who hold to the belief that they are the only ones who are going to heaven. They're oftentimes referred to as Baptist briders. You ever heard of that term? Because they believe that they are the only ones who make up the bride of Christ. Some years back, I attended a funeral. This has been quite a few years back, actually. I attended a funeral of a friend of mine, his, of his grandmother. It was for a friend of mine. But his grandmother had passed away. And as I went through the receiving line and took him by the hand, I said the things that we say to people. Uh, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't need to, we don't need to sorrow as others who have no hope, my brother. But you know, all these kind of things we say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of you. Say, see, I see, I knew that this was, this woman was a, a godly woman who had served in her church all of her life and she had a vibrant testimony. But as I was saying this to this fellow, his head was shaking, no. And he was distressed, and the tears were streaming down his face. And I thought, what? What did I say? I didn't understand what I had said. And then afterwards, I, I heard from somebody what the problem was. He, he was one of those. He was one who believed that if you were not a member of his particular denomination or group, you were lost. He believed his own grandmother was in hell because she had chosen a different particular church. It's not just the Baptists who hold to that kind of stuff sometimes. And by the way, that's not a normal Baptist belief. That's a very small, small, small subsect of that particular thing. But whether it's Church of God or Catholic or whatever other group you want, there's always some, some group in there that would fall into that particular thinking. Uh, that they are the only ones. Too often our acceptance or lack of other believers could be described like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then I'll fellowship with you. You ever known somebody like that? Now, we need to be clear about this. Separation is something that's taught in Scripture. Separation is a biblical truth. There, there, there are people that we should separate from and avoid fellowship with. The Bible does say in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Some we do need to separate from. But our goal as believers, uh, for those who flagrantly choose a sinful lifestyle or, or reject Christ openly, our goal is their repentance. Our goal is their salvation. And we do live in their midst, and we do try to reach out to them in the hope of influencing them and winning them for Christ. We are to be salt, and we are to be light, even to those. And the same is true of a brother or sister. A brother or sister who uh, chooses to turn from a life of serving Christ to a life of open, uh, unrepentant sin. We're to separate from them, and our goal there is repentance and restoration. Often people will say things like, Jesus spent his time with sinners, and so I do too. Those are usually people who don't read their Bibles. Because Jesus never condoned sin. Ever. If you can ever find a time in the Bible where Jesus condoned sin, or hung around and participated with sin, I will eat this New King James Bible in front of this whole church. It's not in there. That is not what Jesus did he he rebuked their sin and taught them their need to repent to the woman caught in adultery he said go and sin no more 
in John chapter 8 and verse number 11. After healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus warned him, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you, John chapter 5. And so there is a place in Scripture for separation. But John and the disciples were taking it to a different place. What they were admitting to here was taking this idea too far. They were applying it not to sin. They were applying it to differences amongst believers. He doesn't follow us, they said. He's not part of our denomination, they said. He doesn't dress just like we do, he said. And Jesus' teaching is helpful here. Even if sometimes it may be hard for us to swallow this and apply it, and maybe we don't do very well at it. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He who is not against us is on our side. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Matthew in his gospel gives just the exact opposite. He, he recorded Jesus saying at a different time the exact opposite thing. He said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So if you take those verses together... Some things become clear, don't they? Some things like this, Jesus saying that you cannot be neutral with respect to him. You're either for him or you're not. That's one thing he's saying there. There's no middle ground. But he's also saying to us, we're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. One man said the criterion for ministry is not style or tradition or denomination, but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified, and we are to rejoice in that. Remember what Paul told the Philippians? Paul said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul said it doesn't matter what their motives are. It doesn't matter their style. It doesn't matter how they preach it. If they're preaching Jesus Christ... I'm going to rejoice, and I will. It's important to remember that we're not alone in serving our Savior. Jesus is building his church, building it right here in Randolph. He's building it down the road in Atwater. He's building it up north in Rootstown and in Ravenna and in Kent and in Ohio and in every one of these 50 states. He's building it in every country of this world, on all seven continents of this earth. He's building it and calling people out from every race, every group, every sect, every people group. The fact is we are but a small cog in a very great machine, a small grain of sand out of the ocean that is his kingdom and his church. One tiny star out of the universe that is the bride of Christ. And Jesus said, Greatness in serving him includes serving alongside and serving with others. 
Well, maybe you don't see all those three things, or maybe you don't see the comparison there between those three passages. I hope you do. I think they all speak of greatness. So I ask you this morning, does that matter to you? Does it matter to you? Do you want to excel in your service for Christ? In just a couple of weeks, we're going to be recognizing graduates. It's one of the things that we do on a yearly basis. Facebook has been filled with posts of rewards and awards and congratulatory things and upcoming parties and all kinds of things, futures brimming with opportunity for just this word, greatness. And we rightly celebrate that, don't we? But what about our walk with Christ? Do we care about that? Do we have the same desire to succeed for Jesus, to serve him with that kind of distinction? Does it matter? I think some people, some people are perfectly okay with mediocrity and just kind of coasting along. But we ought to want greatness. We ought to want his well done at the end of our journey to motivate us to do great things. We ought not to be like the the servant who buried his talents in the earth and was content with that. We ought to want to succeed. So if that's you, I think there's some lessons here. I think we learned that our life needs to be characterized by service and service for others. And it needs to not be a life lived serving alone. We serve with and alongside others. We pull together. We're part of a team. Serving others, all others, selflessly, is the criterion for greatness in his kingdom.